This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. I'm Jessan Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, Arab Talk is back from a little spring break, and we have so much to talk about today. And perhaps at the top of all of our minds, all of our listeners and viewers who, who kind of tune into Arab Talk, we're thinking about the 75 years commemoration of the Nakba, the catastrophe of uh, Palestine, when over 800,000 Palestinians were forcibly di- displaced from their homes, over 550 villages destroyed, ethnic cleansing, murders. It was catastrophic for Palestine and for Palestinians. And 75 years on, we're going to take stock of you know what's happening with that in part of our discussion today. It's important to commemorate that especially in light of the kind of uh, apartheid state that is taking hold in the uh, parts of historic historic Palestine. So we're going to talk about that. And before we get to that, Jamal, we're going to talk about kind of a very interesting event that happened at uh, City University in New York, CUNY at the law school, where they live streamed the commencement ceremony with where Fatima Mohammed was speaking and uh, she was wearing the traditional Palestinian kufiya. Uh, hours after the ceremony, the video of the speech disappeared, surprisingly, from the website of the law school. It made its way back, and uh, it has caused quite a controversy, as is no surprise to any of us. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Fatima, her speech, her commencement address. And by the way, the commencement speaker is chosen by the students. That's right. So, uh, I mean, she was picked, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And, of course, we have to talk about the, quote, only democracy in the Middle East, uh, the Israeli justice minister. This is a quote from our huge ally, the only democracy in the, in the Middle East, the apartheid state, the justice minister Levin said, and I quote, Arabs, Arabs are buying apartments in Jewish towns in Galilee, leading Jews to leave them as they don't want to live with Arabs. We need to make sure that the Supreme Court justices who understand that Jews do not want to live with Arabs. That's a direct quote of Minister Levin. So the the Galilee is a historic Palestinian Christian town, by the way, Jamal, as we all know, the Galilee area. What a crazy comment. But well, here is with all the, that the, said, the crazy comment, which we'll come back to it later on. But this is the Gal- Galilee, which uh, witnessed major ethnic cleansing in 1948 during the Nakba, which we'll right. talk about it now. And now this minister coming and saying that the Arabs are buying too many homes in Jewish neighborhoods. I mean, think about it. I just want people to pause and, and think about this racist statement. I mean, these are people who were ethnically cleansed, and now they're, of course, population expansion. They need to to buy apartments and homes, and they don't want them Surprise. to live uh, in in Jewish neighborhoods. But uh, yeah, we and and we should talk about that because there's a direct line, Jamal, from what happened in 1948 to where we are today in the apartheid state. When a minister of of an apartheid government, the the apartheid Israeli state, can come out and say. We want Supreme Court justices to understand that Jews don't want Arabs, otherwise known as Palestinians, buying homes in Jewish neighborhoods. There's, there's so much wrong with that statement, you know. So, so many things. And we should mention, we should mention the the so-called Arabs, which are the what we call uh, the 1948 Palestinians, are well, they're indigenous Palestinians, Israeli citizens. Just, just to also right. to clarify this, because you hear the Israeli Hasbara saying that, you know, everyone is equal under the law. There is no discrimination. And then when they want to wiggle their way out of the atrocities they commit, uh, basically in the land between the uh, Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, they said, no, no, this is different. And the West Bank is different. But but in in Israel, meaning you know pre nineteen sixty seven borders, everyone is treated equal. But that's why the Galilee story is so important, Jamal, because as you said, the Hasbara, especially in light of the protests that have been going on uh, in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem against Netanyahu and his revision of the judicial system, 
and all this talk all over the world. People are wringing their hands about, oh, what's happening to Israel and the apartheid state? Oh, my God, you know, we need to save democracy. The reality is, is that since 1948, there has not been a democracy. There's never been a democracy. And the situation, uh, there's never been a democracy for everybody. Let me just be very clear about it. If you're Jewish, you happen to have democracy. But if you're Palestinian, if you're Christian, if you're Muslim, if you're of any other uh, racial or ethnic uh, or religious affiliation, you know, that democracy is hands off. And that's why this story in the Galilee is so important. You put your finger on it, Jamal, because if these are Israeli citizens, Jamal, who are living in the Galilee, why shouldn't they have the freedom and the right to buy property wherever they want in historic Palestine? But that's not the case. You have Minister Levin well, who, wants, I mean, who wants the Supreme Court. We don't have to go, we don't have to go far, yes, uh, and just reverse the clock a little bit here to pre-1960s and when African-Americans right. were prevented from buying homes in uh, white neighborhoods or riding in the buses. It's the same system. That's why when we talk about apartheid and then they are, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who uh, bury their heads in the sand and pretend and keep uh, repeating that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East and ignore totally what's going on on the ground. But anyway, let's go to uh, go back to our main story, Jess, as you've introduced and mentioned every year on May 15th, Palestinians mark a somber occasion, which is the Nakba, which means the catastrophe in Arabic that befell Palestinians in the lead up to and during 1948 when they were ethnically cleansed and expelled from their ancestral homes and lands by Zionist gangs. And, um, you know, we had a mass expulsion that ensued where hundreds of villages, you mentioned this, but you're right, over 500 villages were depopulated, homes were destroyed. There are, you know, I, I know Palestine, I traveled quite a bit in it, and there are villages that exist that have, have been turned into parks, and it, it's so devastating to go there and see the remnants of these villages with outgrown trees. They try to cover cover them up with pine trees, uh, which are not indigenous to the area, so you don't see them from the major um, highways, but they do actually exist. And, of course, thousands of uh, Palestinians were killed by Jewish uh, gangs, the Irgun, the Haganah, the Stern gang uh, militias, and and others who committed uh, just a series of mass atrocities, uh, including dozens of massacres. I I want us to talk a little bit about these massacres, because people, they think, you know, even Palestinians, when they talk about the massacres that happened, and we keep uncovering more and more. And actually, recently, they've uncovered mass graves. That's right. Palestinians think about Deir Yassin, which is, you know, but there were dozens of other massacres that happened. I, I, I um, kind of like to talk about, of course, we'll talk about Deir Yassin, but I'd like to talk about the lesser known um Massacres that happened in in towns and villages. And by the way, uh, there is uh, the Zionists are all up in arms because recently there was a film about Tantura, right? So, right. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk about right. that because I just encourage people to watch that the film. You know. Yeah, it's a it's an important film, and I think it's even done by uh, an Israeli filmmaker who did this. Well, film, yeah, right? it's out there, so so people can watch it, and that's why they're all uh, upset about it. But up in arms, but I want to yeah. mention a few of these um, massacres, just and maybe we talk about maybe five of them. You know, uh, start, uh, starting with the with the village uh, of uh, Balad Sheikh. Balad Sheikh, that's the name of the village, which on uh, December 31st, 1947, so this is early in 1948, uh, they witnessed the first large attack by the Haganah Zionist militia against that village. That village is located east of the port city of Haifa. So I'm not going to even talk about the mass expulsion in Haifa that now Palestinians live in only one neighborhood, which is... uh, the Nusnas uh, neighborhood in, in Haifa. Uh, everybody else uh, was driven from the nice, 
Carmel Mountain with the views. So now they are li- right at the foothill. So in this massacre, this is one of the earliest massacres, uh, 60 to 70 Palestinians uh, were massacred. According, this is, I'm taking this information from Walid Khalid's uh, book, All That Remains. That's also another book that I encourage people to, to read. So what they've decided when they raided the village, the orders were given to, to basically the Palmach, which is uh, a force of 170 uh, Israelis from the Palmach, which is considered the elite force of the Haganah. Uh, and they gave orders to massacre and kill as many adult males as possible. Yes. So they came, killed the men, blew up the houses, pulled out all the adult males uh, just and shot them in public. So there, there are many eyewitnesses who have seen this, a lot of surviving women uh, who ended up living, some of them in, in refugee camps in, in Lebanon and Jordan. They witnessed this, and of course there were um, documented at least Two women and five children were also killed and 40 people were injured. And, of course, the town was destroyed during the attack and, you know, forcing the rest, of course, the villagers to leave. And that's why people would say, well, how come you have so many Palestinian refugees? Well, that's <laughs> that's one example. Well, can, can I let me let me just say something about that, Jamal, a couple of things, which is really important. Uh, this is uh, Bella the Sheikh. You you describe the Haganah and the uh, Palmach as Israeli forces, but let's just for the sake of clarity, there was no Israel in nineteen forty seven. No, these are yeah, these are Zionist gangs. These are Zionist thugs. Under and and just another level of detail in terms of the history here, who with a wink and a nod from the British uh, colonial rule at the time. Uh, were actually, uh, you know, allowed the opportunity to get these weapons. They weren't, uh, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that the that the British occupying forces, you know, not necessarily collaborated with this, but were aware of these thuggish, you know, murderous gangs. And this goes to show our our viewers and listeners, Jamal, that this was a coordinated effort. Uh, that started well before 1948 to depopulate and cleanse indigenous Palestinians from the land. The other point, just to be really clear, why would they sh- go and shoot the men? In, in part, in part, in part, one is a is trying to send a message right to the other villages around that these uh, these these murderous uh, Zionist gangs could be coming out after you know other villages. This was part of that coordinated effort to instill fear in the population. And obviously it didn't work because it took many months afterwards before the more coordinated effort in uh, 1948. But we'll get to that. But I think it's important for our listeners and viewers to know that there was no Israel in 1947. And the the other thing, Jamal, just sorry to free associate here. The majority of people on the land in historic Palestine in 1947 Palestinians. The majority of landowners in 1947, Palestinians. So this was a majority, historic Palestine was majority Palestinian at the time when these murderous thugs were doing their reign. And another book I want to mention, Jess, which we talked about quite a bit, is uh, actually two books. One also by Khalidi, Rashid Khalidi, is... uh, uh, the Iron Cage, and the right. other one is by uh, Israeli historian Ilan Pape, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, right? In, in which he discusses a systematic plan to ethnically cleanse the land, starting with Plan Dalit. You know, it wasn't like a right. coincidence, and they tried to make it like there was a war between Arabs and Jews and whatever. It wasn't. It was no. a very synchronized uh, plan to basically drive fear, kill as many people, drive them away from their homes. And, and, and that's how these villages were emptied out. And, and right. by the way, uh, Bel Sheikh uh, was um, um, considered in 19, uh, before the massacre in 1945 
The village was the second largest in historical Palestine in terms of population amongst these. Wow. You know, because, you know, you know, going back 1945, you had a lot of small villages. And if you said more than 500 uh, of these villages were ethnically cleansed. Second uh, um, lesser known massacre that happened is in Sasa. That's the uh, village of Sasa the, or the town of Sasa. And they had two massacres were carried out by the Haganah. This is 1948. One in mid-February and another one in October. So the first one, the community massacre, killed a lot of people. Uh, again, was raided by the Palmach force and detonated explosives inside several homes, destroying 10 homes and killing tens of people. This is according to the Haganah estimates. This is coming from the archive, Israeli archives, uh, and even the New York Times at that time reported that uh, you know, the number of people were killed, including uh, five children and 14 houses were destroyed. However, the villagers stood their ground, didn't leave. Wow. So they came back again in October, okay? Now a larger force force in uh, October 30th of uh, of that year, 1948. And this is, uh, again, from the mouth of the enemy. This is coming from uh, Israel Galilee, the former head of the Haganah national staff, who brags about the numbers that the, the people were killed and the details, he details the accounts of the killings. Uh, and, uh, of course, the village uh, eventually got depopulated because of the second massacre. Because before 1948, the village was known for being an intersection that linked many urban centers, including the big city of, of Safad, which basically had, it was dotted with water springs, apple, olive trees, grapevines, and in 1949, an Israeli settlement by the same name was established on the village site. So if you go there, Unbelievable. the village exists, but it's yes. depopulated of its indigenous po uh, population, which is the Palestinians. So, right. so again, this is very important because people, even I said, a lot of Palestinians don't know that. Sometimes you drive by and you see an exit for the town, Sasa, this is a Palestinian village, and you go there, there isn't a single Palestinian uh, living in it. Why? And, <laughs> well, yeah, but, and the, other, and the other tragedy and the other kind of visual atrocity, Jamal, and, and this, this goes back to the name of, Rashid Khalidi's book, All That Remains, when and you and I, you and I have done this drive where you, you drive around these areas and you may exit to a city uh, or to an illegal settlement, and you'll see the remains of the depopulated, ethnically cleansed city still there. You'll see the homes. You'll see uh, you know stones of the homes. You'll see little walls. You'll see the remnants, the remains, as Khalidi said, uh, of these depopulated, ethnically cleansed villages. So the visual evidence of the atrocity is still there, Jamal. That's why we remember uh, 75 years later, and that's why it's very important for us to talk about this. I mean, we don't have, we don't have in this hour, we can only talk maybe about five, Jess. And we could, I mean, you've mentioned 500. So let me go to, yeah. to the next village, which is, this is the famous or infamous massacre, Daria Sin, which happened on April yeah. 9th uh, of 1948, where more than 110 Palestinian men, women, and children were slaughtered in one of the most heinous crimes carried out by these Zionist uh, forces. And this was a once prosperous village of Daria Sin because it's on the western outskirts of Jerusalem. So if you're heading to Jaffa, which is basically right. another prosperous town. Jerusalemites would travel in the old road. Now Israel calls it Highway 1. There was also a rail, railroad track. And if you traveled by bus, by car, you pass by Deir Yassin, you could stop there and kind of have a picnic or a rest. So that was very prosperous. It's just like on the way to, to Jaffa. And so this massacre took place, and in it, the, the instructions was to kill everybody, men, women, children, pregnant women. I mean, you have 
all kinds of stories coming out from this um, this massacre here. And those who were not killed, just were rounded up and pra- paraded through uh, Jerusalem by the Zionist forces. That's by right. that time, they took over Western Jerusalem. And then, right. then later on, they were taken to a nearby quarry and executed. That's right. So, That's so right. this is how, uh, you know, so the massacre at the village, which was a home to an estimated 750 residents uh, who lived in 144 homes. And this is according to the uh, Institute for Palestine Studies, became one of the most horrific events to have impacted the ex- exodus of Palestinians because it was so close to Jerusalem. Now the news, remember, you didn't have an internet, you didn't have an internet, you didn't have television. That the, so when people started f- uh, fleeing and it was so close to Jerusalem, uh, you know, it drove other townships and villages it, 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 into a major um, basically exodus and uh, and leaving well because of because of the fear that it instilled and again just to just to kind of put a put an emphasis on this this occurred in April of 1948 this is there was no existence of Israel by that time still Jamal so you had these murderous uh, militia thugs uh, these Zionist thugs who would go around and, and commit these massacres the the Dir Yassin really was devastating in a lot of fronts of you as you described Jamal, but the psychological impact, as you kind of alluded to, on the surrounding villages and and on Jerusalem, must have been just uh, extraordinary. And you know the stories we hear around that time, people were were living in fear. There's lots of stories about what was happening at that time, and it just to go back to this because it's really important. This was part of an orchestrated, well-planned, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing and murderous rampage by these thugs. This was not, oh, all of a sudden Arabs invaded, you know, Israel and there's a war in 1948. I mean, this crazy narrative of the War of Independence that, uh, that the Hasbaristas like to uh, articulate. This was a plan that they had started years before 1948, Jamal. And that's, that needs to be emphasized over and over again to counteract the, the kind of you know, misinformation and misnarrative that's being put out, has been put out by the uh, supporters you know, of the apartheid state for many decades now. You're absolutely correct, uh, Jess. And of course, this massacre in Darius Heen, I mean, you can ask uh, every single Palestinian and they'll tell you a story that they've heard from uh, their parents, from their grandparents, even the children know it. Absolutely. I recall it as a child. I mean, this is because I can tell you why, and there's something very important, aside from it being so close to Jerusalem, uh, a friend and actually a relative of my father, Hind al-Husseini, she's a very well-known Palestinian activist, uh, Hind al-Husseini, she started a school called Dar al-Tifl, which literally means the uh, you know, children's home. And uh, the reason she did that is because 55 uh, young children were orphaned as a result of yes. the massacre. So they brought them into Jerusalem. Their parents were killed. And she started that school, which still it exists up to today. So the first generation, mm-hmm. if you think about it, like, uh, you know, the this, this first 55 children, those are children, say, from two-year-old, three-year-old, whatever. Those are the graduates of Dar al They are really the, the remnants of their Yassin or those who were left to, to live. And they can, and then, of course, now it, it has become a famous school and an orphanage kind of house. But a single woman from, from Jerusalem started this because of it's this massacre. So, so everyone who passes by Dar al in, in Jerusalem as a child, like, why does did this school exist? It existed because of their Yassin, because of the massacre wow. of their Yassin. That's an incredible story, Jamal. Those memories, because now we're going into the fourth generation of those children who had children, whose children had children and are now having children too. That's an extraordinary story. Yep. And that's why, like I said, uh, I wanted to include Darius Heen, even though I said earlier, we want to talk 
about the lesser known massacres. So let's move on to another one, which is in the village of Salha, or Saliha, which uh, the massacre happened on October 30th, 1948, and it was perpetrated by the Shiva, or Sheva, Sheva, which in Hebrew means seventh, seventh brigade, basically. And uh, this is um, according to various accounts, including by the Haganah National Staff, uh, Staffs Israel's Galilee, uh, also Israeli historian Benny Morris. Uh, that um, uh, like some of these, you, you don't have survivors to talk about this from the Palestinian side, so you hear about them or read about them from the Israeli archives. That's right. You know, they, uh, I mean, in a, uh, I don't know how, what they call this, just in a, in a warped way, they documented their massacres. I of mean, usually the they, criminals don't like to leave the evidence, but they left the no, evidence. No, not only did they have the evidence, it was extremely detailed. I mean, if you look at the new historians and the people who are having access to these archives, what's really extraordinary, Jamal, is the level of detail that the murderers, the criminals, uh, the people who perpetrated these, uh, these, you know, these international war crimes, how well documented it was. It was truly extraordinary. I mean, on modern, uh, on what would be considered a modern day spreadsheet, that's the level of detail that they have. So according to their documentation, they started to blow blow up some homes, and the villagers ran and hid inside a mosque. And then they blew up the mosque and started killing them. They killed 60 to 94 people uh, who had taken refuge inside the mosque. And, of course, then the village was completely depopulated. And uh, I think there is now just one building standing, which used to be the school, and the site, the village was very flat, so now they turn it into um, in, into an ag- agricultural land uh, you know, for Israeli settlers, basically to uh, plant trees and fr- fruit trees in it. And that's uh, you know disgusting. Yeah, frankly, that's something that I'm- they basically uh, you know bragged about. Well, they bragged about it, they wrote about it, they kept good records of it, and all of this, all of that evidence of the war crimes that were committed, Jamal, are coming out 75 years on, will continue to come out. And the reason, you know, we we want to remind our listeners and viewers, the reason we do this is to, you know, bring bring an element of the reality of the apartheid state, how it came into being the kind of calculated effort to depopulate and ethnically cleanse Palestine for years before, you know, the, the, the creation of the apartheid state in 1948. And you're only talking about, five, we're only talking about five today, Jamal, right? Yeah. What if we talked about the 500? We, that we, were, we need days and months. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and this village basically, it was actually, uh, stood on talking about because we started talking about the Galilee, which will come back to it, yeah. that they don't want yeah, Arabs yeah. living next to them. In the Galilee. This is a yeah. village in the upper Galilee. It's by a ravine yeah. called Wadi Saliha. That's what was named after. It's a steep uh, wadi, which means a ravine. In the upper Galilee mountains, it goes near uh, the border uh, with Lebanon, uh, Lebanon, and someone who you know well, Salman Abu Sitta, uh, author of the Atlas of uh, Palestine, estimated that the number of registered Palestinian refugees from Saliha in 2008 was more than 8,000 people. That's incredible, Jamal, and we, we should let our listeners know that Salman Abu Sitta's documentation of the depopulated villages is probably the best empirical scientific uh, treatise uh, on on the depopulation of Palestine that was ever written. We really want to encourage our listeners and viewers to check out Salman Abu Sitta's research. It's extraordinary. And the last one I want to talk about is not a village. It's actually a, a, a prospering city. Because I don't talk about Haifa and Jaffa and Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, and all these 
places in Hakka, and we can go on and on. But I want to talk about one because people also know about this location and they hear about it, especially if they, if they flew to Palestine and, and where do they land, what is now called... Where do they land? That's right. What is it now right. called? Ben-Gurion do... Airport. It's the lid. Well, it, it's the lid. Or Lidda, you know, and even the Israelis refer to it as the Lod, but the, the lid, that was a prospering city uh, on the way to, again, to, to Jaffa. And now... Um, still, it, it, it exists, but now they've taken a major part of that city. There was a small airport, by the way. The airport existed pre-1948, wasn't, wasn't established by Ben-Gurion or by uh, the Israelis. So there was actually an airport, a small airport there, and they expanded it. So now everyone hears about flying into Ben-Gurion. No, you're flying into the ethnically cleansed Palestinian city of a lid, that's what we refer to it, which on July 9th, 1948, Zionist forces, they launched a large-scale military operation known as Operation right. Danny, that's the name, which aimed to occupy the cities of Lid and Ramla, the Lidda and Ramla, the two cities between July 9th and uh, July 19th. The, the Israeli gangs and militias killed dozens of Palestinians, estimated more than 200 this is, again, according to Salman Abu Sitta's Atlas of Palestine. And a citywide massacre led to a death march or mass expulsion of Palestinians. And you and I knew somebody who was basically, as a young child, arrested in that mass expulsion and put into That's a... Holding camp. Concentration, concentration. No, concentration camp. You, you know who I'm talking about, Darwish Adas. Yeah. He's from yeah, yeah. the one of the late presidents of the Arab Culture and Community Center. He talked about his story. So they gathered everybody after they, they killed, started pillaging and killing people. And then basically they had what part of this a transfer uh, operation. It's an organized transfer operation, which they gathered and expelled from Palestine between 60,000 and 70,000 inhabitants of the two towns and refugees from nearby villages. Because uh, from nearby villages now, which we talked, gave examples of these villages, started running into Jaffa and Haifa and whatever bigger cities, and they went into the Lid to take refuge there, and they got expelled with them in that uh, major transfer Operation and um, and uh, who was the director of the operation, uh, Danny? Uh, um, you know, under um, under the guidance of David Ben Gurion. Basically, people like Yitzhak Rabin. Remember, that's right. The one who yes. won the, the Nobel the Peace. Nobel Pre the Nobel Peace yes, Prize was sir. A, he was, was an architect of massacre. He was in charge of that expulsion of 60 to 70,000 Palestinians. 80 to 176 people were massacred in the in the Dahmash Mosque. That's documented with machine guns, grenades, and rockets. Others were killed every, uh, in other places. And the rest were expelled at gunpoint by Rabin in what became known as the Death March to Ramallah. That's why you have a lot of people who live in Ramallah from the Lid and from That's the Ramli. Right. And right. I know That's right. you guys who originate <laughs> from Ramallah kind of look, look down at them. Something. Oh, you're not. Well, well, some of them say, you're not originally from Ramallah. You are from the Lid. <laughs> That's how they uh, ended up in Ramallah. I know. The poor, yeah, the yeah, poor yeah. guys and women and children uh, and ended up living there. But they were. Yeah, but. You mentioned you mentioned our colleague and our friend Darwish Adassi, but uh, you know when Darwish, uh, even some seventy years after this happened, Jamal was very painful and difficult for him to talk about this event. That tells you about the psychological impact and scar of the trauma at that time. Yes, he couldn't go back boy. there, even as uh, he never he had the opportunity to go. He couldn't. It was Gather enough courage 
to go there. It's too painful. It's too painful. And it, it remains painful for a lot of Palestinians who were dispossessed from their homes and villages from 1948, from 1967, and afterwards, Jamal. The, the psychological impact, which we don't talk about, we haven't talked about that much, of the impact of these massacres and these mass expulsions is tremendous. It really is. And Darwish you know, was this incredible, incredible man, you know, with an incredible life who was so scarred by this, as you said, he could never go back. Yeah. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Uh, we can talk about this forever, Jess, uh, but we wanted to give our audience uh, just a sampling of these massacres. These are real massacres, and that's why it's very painful for Palestinians to remember this. And so when you hear politicians congratulating Israel on its 75th anniversary, this is our Nakba. This is basically the catastrophe that was committed against Palestinians in 1948 and before 1948, starting before 1948. And, and, you know, Israel, it wasn't, as how the media tries to represent the uh, independence of Israel, dependence of what? They've taken over our land, our homes, ethnically cleansed the people there, and they bury their heads in the sand, and the politicians and their sar- and, and, and the Israel lobby surrogates in the United States, they pretend that these massacres have never existed. And then when you try to talk about these massacres or you try to talk about the existing Israeli apartheid, they start accusing you of anti-Semitism as we have been seeing now. Well, that's a good segue to our next uh, our next segment, Jamal, because you know we draw a line from the massacres of the Nakba from 1948, 75 years, and where we are today you have an increased kind of uh, aggressive uh, stance by the Hasbaristas, by the pro-Israel lobby. They're so scared right now and so anxious. They want to rework the definition of anti-Semitism. They're attacking what appears to be mostly Palestinian and pro-Palestinian women right now because We've talked about a Palestinian professor at the the University of Washington. We're going to talk about this uh, law student at uh, CUNY uh, City University in New York. I mean, they're coming after women and Palestinians and pro-Palestine academics and people who have been, you know, pulling back the screen of all of these uh, attempts to hide the atrocities of 1948 leading up to 1948, 1948 and everything since. And now there's a even stronger effort to call out the apartheid state. And we have an example of a commencement address at the law school at City University of New York by Fatima Mohammed, a a, I mean, I listened to it. I watched it. And I listened to it because now it's it's back online. Extraordinary commencement address. She was selected by her own classmates to do this, and of course, the Hasbaristas, the pro-Israel voices, are having seizures about her speech. Jamal, you know, they're having. It's unbelievable. Which, by the way, I should mention that uh, we're hoping to have uh, Fatima Muhammad uh, come on the show and 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 tell her own story. Uh, however, we'll attempt to shed light on uh, what happened uh, based on what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've it's read. Not, but, but Jamal, it's not complicated. No, it's not complicated, but, she's I'd, a lo- but I'd like her to come. She's a law school. <laughs> I'd like, I'd, <laughs> she's, a law, yeah. she, she's a law school graduate at an excellent law school. She was selected by her classmates to give a commencement address. And the commencement, get, and you're very familiar with this, the school has nothing to do with the selection. Right, the students, the, the students, the students get to select. So, so they, they basically, her colleagues, her friends, the other students, put her on a pedestal, basically to represent them all. And and, and they, I should mention one more thing. I should mention that Fatima is not Palestinian. She's she's not. She's she's her family came from Yemen. Okay, so she's uh, Fatima Muhammad. Uh, basically, she. Rose uh, went on the podium, uh, draped in the famous Palestinian kafiyeh, 
And every single commencement address, Jess, if you go back since they started filming those, you could find them. So so we are, this is the commencement address, I guess it would be 2023 because this happened on May 12th. Right. You'll find it. Right. You won't find two. You won't find 2022 because the commencement address that happened was given by a Palestinian-American student. And and her video lasted for a year, lasted for a year until this incident happened. So because it just happened, the students to select Fatima this year and the year before they selected Palestinian-American. And both of them were activists involved in the BDS movement and, you know, just like all students on campus. Right, right. But but my point is is that and you 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 made it. I'm just driving it home. She was selected by her colleagues, by her peers, precisely because they knew about her commitment to justice. Precisely because they knew about her views on on what's happening in Palestine. She was selected because of her commitment to justice and articulating those views. She wasn't just like oh. Uh, who is this? We're gonna select this woman. We don't know who she is or what yes, she represents. Everybody knows. She was knew her. They, they she's a very well-known activist, law school student. Did very well at, at CUNY, and is well respected by the majority of her classmates. That's why she was elected, not selected, Jamal, elected because. They're put to a vote, you know, people vote for who they want. It's not selected, it's elected, which is even a, you know, uh, I think even a higher standard, actually. So, but, you know, the response has been, they, it was, they, I mean, the response was predictable and extreme, right? So I have to ask you something because you watched the video, you've mentioned it's back on, but did you watch it on YouTube? It was YouTube. Okay, so it's back on YouTube because initially the law school brought it back. You know, there is oh, a, yeah, they, they right. brought it and then but it was taken from uh, YouTube. Anyway, going back, the videos of the commencements from 2014, this is when they started posting them on YouTube, to 2021 are all available on the school's YouTube page. You may you should check the YouTube you watch if it is the school's YouTube page oh, yeah, or yeah, other yeah, people yeah, yeah. took it and I, posted it again. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. I don't know that answer. So in last year when I mentioned mentioned this, the graduation speaker, the other speaker of 2022 commencement was Nerdin Kiswani. She's a Palestinian activist and the founder of Within Our Lifetime Palestine. And like Fatima Muhammad Kiswani's speech also called out Israel's human rights violations against Palestinians and again he mysteriously disappeared. I mean, you could see that just in the case as you and I, we have talked to professors, Georgetown, I mean, George Washington University, San Francisco State University, you get all, I don't know, the, pre- the, the president or the provost, they get these mysterious calls and all of a sudden they change their position because Cooney, uh, the law school, they passed a resolution supporting BDS. That's right. So, so that was, you know, this, this, this school and the students, and I should say one more thing, the... Jewish students or the, sorry, the CUNY School of Law, Jewish Law Students Association wrote a letter in support of Fatima Muhammad, and I'm quoting here, and they said, it is disingenuous to characterize these factual descriptions as anti-Semitic when they describe the conditions of Palestinian Life, And then they go on to say, if Cooney Law wants to show it cares for its Jewish students, it can do so by showing it cares for Fatima, which I think was very... It's an incredible statement. Yes. Yeah, but isn't it interesting that the official statement from CUNY uh, conveniently left out the CUNY law school student, Jewish law school student statement? You don't hear that statement. 
You don't read it anywhere because it's such a powerful statement coming from uh, CUNY Law School Jewish uh, Student Association. It's it's a great statement, and you know that's being, you know, when we're when the when the JDL and the uh, uh, ADL and when the JCRC are are going crazy about Fatima's commencement speech, they conveniently leave out what the Jewish law school students at CUNY have said. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they leave out a lot of things and they distort, yeah, this, like distort, reality. distort the facts. But also it was very important for Fatima Muhammad, which... I mean, she was an activist. She stands for justice. She's a she's a lawyer, for God's sake. I mean, now, hopefully, she'll get a great job and she'll have a great career ahead of her. It's not like, you, you know, someone who knows what's injustice. I mean, you study. I mean, that's part of the law to know, to, to kind of identify justice and injustice. And what drove her, according to an interview she had, was, and I'm quoting from her, is the cold-blooded murder of Shireen Abu Akli precisely highlights the glaring and disturbing dehumanization of the Palestinian people by the U.S. government. So she goes on about that because she doesn't only hold apartheid Israel accountable, she holds the United States accountable for not standing with an American citizen who was murdered in cold blood. I mean, a very, uh, anyway, a very moving uh, statement. Just, and again, I mentioned earlier that last year the faculty, and this is important, the faculty of the CUNY School of Law passed a resolution unanimously endorsing the boycott sanctions and divestment BDS movement which, as everybody knows, is a nonviolent initiative that seeks to challenge Israel's occupation and abuse of Palestinian human rights through economic, cultural, and academic boycotts, similar so, to the successful boycott campaigns of apartheid South Africa. So I don't see where the crime in, 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 in this, Jess. Well, here's the crime, Jamal. It's, a, it's called the crime of reality. It's called the crime of speaking the truth. It's called the crime of holding the apartheid state accountable for its atrocities. And not that we need any more kind of hypocrisy or any more information to call out, as Fatima did, holding the United States accountable for the, for the you know, complicity in the murder of Sharin Abu Akla. We now have a justice minister, you know, Justice Minister Levine, basically you know, pleading, pleading with uh, Israeli Supreme Court justices to understand that Jews don't want to live with Arabs and they should be able to support that. It's mind-boggling in its craziness, Jamal, because the the level of racism, the level of anti-democratic, the, the level of just like outright institutionalized hate that the apartheid state has for Palestinians is so glaring here. And this is completely missed in the media portrayal of what's happening in the apartheid state right now. This is an incredible, this is not just anybody, Jamal. This is a justice minister. He's a justice this minister is a minist in the fascist government of Benjamin Netanyahu. But anyway, he's also the chief architect of the suspended judicial overhaul legislation. That's why... Right. Israelis are demonstrating in, in, in Tel Aviv, and this is uh, what we're talking about. He, it's quoted, it's not quoted, it's actually recorded. He told the cabinet on Sunday that the Supreme Court must feature justices who, between courts, understand why Jewish Israelis would not be prepared to live with Arabs in mixed localities. And this is his quote again from him Arabs buy apartments in Jewish communities in the Galilee. And this causes Jews to leave these cities because they are not prepared to live with Arabs. We need to ensure that the Supreme Court has justices who understand this. In other words, we need more racist uh, justices who would <laughs> pass laws, basically, you know. Hey, hey, Joe Biden, are you listening? Hey, Anthony Blinken, are you listening? Hey, Chuck Schumer, are you listening? Hey, Hakeem Jeffries, are you listening? Is anybody listening to this craziness? No, they're, they're, they're just happy to travel. Hakeem Jeffries, happy to travel and uh, for photo op. And, uh, and then we have, sadly, which we talked about it last time, 
our own mayor in San Francisco, London Breed, London Breed. traveling to yeah. Haifa, which we talked about. This is a major Palestinian city which was ethnically cleansed in 1948. And uh, just uh, to, to say we have sister cities, at the time when you have an American journalist uh, uh, was murdered there at a time when they were bombing Gaza. And, um, I mean, that's the reality here. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, what can you say uh, to someone like Hakim Jeffrey who knows well, what I'll tell the you experience what, I'll of tell the African-American community in this country? I'll tell you. Of, I'll tell you. Uh, you know. Someone... Someone confronted Hakim the other day, Hakim Jeffries, on some of these apartheid uh, conditions, racist apartheid conditions of of his beloved uh, support of apartheid Israel. And he said, and I'm quoting, oh, I have no knowledge of that. Wow. No TV. He must live, uh, you know, he must live, uh, you know, in, in total darkness, no television, no internet, um, no social media. He, he hasn't seen he any of is, that. He is, he's a piece of work. He's an African-American, you know, uh, minority leader in the Congress with a name like Hakeem, who has no knowledge of the atrocities that are being committed. Kim means the wise by, guy, by the way. Yeah. The wise man. Very, yeah, the wise man. Very wise of him to say, oh, he wasn't aware or had no knowledge of, of these apartheid practices. Uh, yeah, right, Hakim. That's why you became uh, a, a minority leader in the Congress of the Democrats, because you have no knowledge of these things. Yeah, like anybody is going to believe you, man. Come on. Well, anyway, uh, this is uh, the beginning. I think uh, the situation on the ground is getting worse. Uh, we don't worse. have the time even to talk about it, but uh, these so-called Israeli leaders uh, uh, like uh, Itmar Ben-Gavir, Smotrich, and others are calling for a second Nakba. And we started the show talking about the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, but they are actually talking about the second Nakba. We don't have time no, but, but, to discuss but, but, this, Jess. Right, and they're, they're, they're making matters worse, as you and I know, we don't, and we don't have time, but it's too bad, but they're going to Al-Aqsa, they're going to the Haram Sharif, they're going to Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, in deliberate pr provocations against all the international agreements and conventions about this kind of behavior, and they're being so provocative. They want to provoke another Nekba, Jamal. They're, that's exactly what they're doing. You're right. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we will speak to you next week. See you next week. <laughs>